Hello, Ryerson. You're listening to Blue and Gold. From the Ryersonian, I'm your host, Sidra Joffrey. For our last podcast episode of this semester, we decided to check in with our reporters to talk about their latest stories. First up is Josh Scott, business editor for the Ryersonian. Last week, he and Blue and Gold executive producer Alex Sear wrote and published a feature on Ryerson professors' use of the controversial proctoring software. Then, I speak with Nabiha Baig, who wrote about how time has felt different this year because of the pandemic. Finally, I check in with Gavin Mercier to discuss his story on how Zoom recently reached a settlement with the Federal Trade Commission for security-related issues. Thank you so much for joining us on the pod, Josh. Thank you for having me. You wrote a story about Ryerson's use of the Respondus proctoring software, which students criticized for being overly invasive. The software flags students for any suspicious activity like looking down on a notepad or having a second person entering the screenshot. Based on your reporting, does it seem like the university will do away with Respondus or should we simply learn to live with it? Uh, based on my reporting, based on our reporting, I co-wrote this with uh, my colleague Alex here. Um, it doesn't look like Ryerson has any current plans to stop using this software. Um, whether that will change in the future, it's difficult to tell. And the school sort of sees it as as a, as necessary, particularly uh, during online exams, since obviously in-person exams aren't possible right now. Mm-hmm. And so the use of respondents respond as it's not mandatory, but have you heard of whether or not some instructors have found ways around this problem? Yeah, so that's that's the interesting thing because, uh, so just to, just to clarify, the use of this software isn't mandatory during online exams. Basically the university leaves it up to the discretion of instructors uh, and it recommends that instructors only use it if it's absolutely necessary. Um, but some profs, uh, some profs at Ryerson have found ways of ways of avoiding its use. And the interesting one we highlight in our story is uh, Laurel Walzak. She's an assistant prof at the RTA School of Media, and essentially, she she kind of wanted to take away the temptation to cheat, even though she doesn't think her students tend to cheat. Um, and she uh, she basically chose allowed her students to collaborate in groups. Um, and apply sort of the knowledge in some more real world problems. Apply uh, the knowledge they learned in the semester to some more real world problems. And with these exams going online, do you know of any other issues and possibly solutions for any of these issues when it comes to these exams being online? So, so that's interesting. Um, that's an interesting question. Even like we, we tried to explore basically as many issues as we possibly could in our story, as many of the issues associated with the use of like this sort of software and this software responses software specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also other issues we didn't have time to get into, but in terms of solutions, it basically it seems like at this point, Ryerson professors need to decide whether the use of this software is warranted, given how students have said it's, it affects it affects them. Um, and obviously, the, necess- the important context to note there is we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Students say uh, that the quality of their education has suffered recently. 
due to the shift to online school. And students have also reported that their mental health is suffering significantly. Recent research and reporting suggests that. So essentially, it seems like professors need to decide whether the use of the software is warranted given that context. Mm-hmm. And one, one solution, again, is, is, is shifting to qualitative methods of testing. And obviously, the use of the software is less warranted in, say, courses where you're writing essays versus courses where you're doing like multiple choice exams, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it's a really cool story that you and Alex reported on. So thank you so much for that. Thanks for Uh, highlighting. Yeah, for sure. So just for the other story, you were talking about how Ryerson partnered with a Canadian software company called Sodi to learn research into drone technology. Um, When we think about drones, we usually think about Amazon and maybe the future of online shopping, but this research was really centered around healthcare and search and rescue operations. So how does Ryerson land such a deal with Toronto having such tight drone regulation? Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, Ryerson's role in the project, uh, as we as we write, is to lead research on this work. As for we don't really get into the regulations here, but obviously for like any of this tech to actually be applied, there'll have to be a lot of thought put into the uh, like how it's regulated. But in terms of how Ryerson landed this, so from our reporting, we found that. Um, Sodi's founder, president, and CEO, Carl Rodriguez, actually has a previous connection with the school because he advised Ryerson regarding the creation of the Rogers Cybersecurity Catalyst. It's a Brampton uh, not-for-profit that is owned and operated by the school and focuses on like cybersecurity research, that sort of thing. And so he's been interested, it's been a personal project of Rodriguez's that he's been, he's been interested in the use of autonomous drones and the applications of autonomous drones for a while now. And he's been interested in this since pre-COVID, but this summer he thought the tech was at the point where he was ready to find a partner to really help research this kind of stuff. And Ryerson actually has a good reputation in the aerial drone tech research sector. Mm, That's really interesting. Other than Rodriguez, do you know who the other people who were involved in making this happen were? I guess in this, from what we understand, the key players were Rodriguez, uh, Stephen Liss, who's Ryerson's Vice President of Research and Innovation. And for our story, we did a more in-depth interview with Sodi's uh, Vice President of Product Strategy, uh, Shashanand, and uh, he sort of told us a bit more about Sodi's end of the project. Yeah. There are three key tech-related barriers that need to be crossed before we see autonomous aerial drones, battery power, sensor data collection, and decision-making. Today's drones have hit a wall in terms of their ability to carry cargo and are prone to disruption by Wi-Fi and cellular signal interference. SOTI is currently focusing its research on sensor data collection and processing tech. In other words, what external info the drone takes in and how it decides to act upon it. Devneet Desai, the Ryerson student Josh spoke to, said he thinks it will take a few years to tackle these issues. He predicts that four to five years from now, we'll start to see autonomous drones delivering our packages. So finally, after reporting this article, do you have a sense of what some of the first projects coming out of this new partnership might be? Yeah, so essentially, SODI is hoping to apply their eventual autonomous aerial drone prototype to use in healthcare. Um, and then later search and rescue operations. And those are the two sort of main applications that they highlighted. They declined to go into specifics with regard to how big exactly uh, they want their drone to be. 
And they're currently working with a bigger model just because they're going through, they're trying to work out some tech related issues. Um, but eventually they envision sort of like a small drone for indoor use that can do things like say, pick up medicine and serve it to uh, say, for instance, elderly patients if required, which is actually a particularly interesting application now, given how, uh, given like the high risk associated with say, treating elderly patients during COVID-19. And then sort of like in terms of like bigger, bigger applications in the future, they also see potential in search and rescue. And the example, the SODI CEO told us to the logic, the interesting example there is say you could use a drone to uh, travel down a mine shaft and determine the location of, uh, of a trapped, of a trapped miner and create a 3d map of how to navigate to that person and any obstacles in that way. So that's another super, uh, super interesting potential application that they see. So hi, Nabia. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Aw, thanks so much for having me. So you reported to the Ryersonian about how time kind of felt different to you and many others, including myself, since the pandemic began. Could you do like a quick summary of what you spoke about and how you spent your time during the year with a year that kind of feels like we're all under lock and key? Yeah, for sure. So um, with the article, I kind of just like, at first I was, it was like my own personal experience with it. So I just decided to talk about that. I just wanted to kind of give the reader an idea of how, like this year has been like weird in like all aspects but like just this one pocket of weirdness (laughs) and yeah I just wanted to like share my own experience of like the weird shift in my daily routines like it it can kind of feel like secondary to do certain things or it did at that time um, because everything was just weird and yeah I just wanted to show how it affected my mental health and how it changed my life honestly and yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> yeah, and you're kind of talking about in the article how you kind of had like a negative impact from this pandemic. Can you kind of talk about those negative things that you were feeling during the starting of the pandemic? Yeah, like if I had to describe it, all I can really think of in my mind is like waiting to like be at the finish line of something, but you don't know where the finish line is. I was just like, especially because we didn't know anything at that time and like when we were going to get out and how long it was going to be. Because I remember like in the beginning, everyone thought it was going to be like, oh, like a month, maybe like two months, but I definitely didn't expect to be in it for like five, six months, still continue on life like this. Currently, I really was just anxious about everything because I had a plan kind of for how my year wanted to go like I feel like most people do and obviously this was not part of the plan and it was just I just felt really especially because I get most of my I spend a lot of my time outside and not at home and everything I did was outside and either like hanging out with my friends or just like yeah I just didn't like being at home I was I'm not really a homebody so that was just such a shift because being at home for so long, it just made me feel icky. And like, <laughs> I felt like I wasn't doing anything. I felt like 
just really like bored in all aspects and just tired of looking at screens, tired of seeing my friends through screens and also like the um, physical affection aspect. I thrive off of that. So not having any of that, like other than like, I don't know, my mom, it was just really difficult. And I feel like a lot of other people talked about how touch deprived they were. And yeah, like the time was just messing with my head because I was honestly just like trying to fill the days and it was just getting really monotonous and that was not fun. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel you, especially on the touch deprivation stuff, because I'm also the same way and I missed hugging my friends. So oh my gosh. Oh. It, was, it was a hard time for us all. Um, yeah, so you talked a lot about how it felt like time was slow, but at the same time fast. You referenced Mo Gil- Gilbert, um, psychologist at Community Psychiatry, and you talked about how time can feel slow in small periods of time, but lightning fast when you take a step back and look at bigger chunks. I definitely know this feeling. I mean, it's already December. What I'm wondering is what you do to try to ground yourself, because I know you've tried a few things, like you've tried building card houses and you've tried puzzles. In this period of time, since it's now really busy and time's going really fast, how do you kind of slow down and breathe? Oh, oh my gosh. I've actually kind of gotten the hang of it now because I feel like those dumb little things that I did, I feel like those were just, I was just like grasping onto anything that could bring some sort of positivity in my life. Um, But now I've like actually gotten into the habit of finding stuff that I can do on a daily basis, honestly. As of right now, like what I do to ground myself is I think in the morning, it's really important to choose how you spend your morning wisely because before I would just like immediately go on my phone and I now I try to not be on it for at least an hour after I wake up. And I never used to be like the type of person to do this, but every single morning I just write in my journal and I just write like anything that's on my mind. Um or affirmations and like mantras to tell myself because as corny as it sounds like that really makes a huge difference it's kind of like helped me love the ordinary parts of my life um literally the most boring things I'm like I'm having the time of my life and I like (laughs) it's so nice to like have that mindset just like write in my journal um watch Hey Arnold eat breakfast and listen to music and I'm like oh it's just such a pleasant morning so that's what I've been doing to like kind of ground myself in the beginning of the day and other than that I just try to do at least like one or two things one or two like creative things and things that for myself that aren't like school or work or anything like that, even if it's like the tiniest thing, I have to do that now because in the beginning of the semester, it was just just work, school, sleep, and that's it. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to, like I said in the article, I don't want to be looking back at my last year in university and be like, I literally, all I did was work. That's it. I don't want to have that in my memory. (laughs) So yeah, I definitely just try to incorporate fun parts into my life, even if it's the most ordinary things. That's really interesting. I definitely have to also do that. I'm still the work, sleep, and repeat person, but we'll get there. Uh, But for our final question, I just wanted to ask if you are able to provide any advice for any person struggling with their mental health or anything like that, or feeling kind of monotonous during this time. Mm-hmm. Um, let me think some advice I would say I think this is like the obvious answer but definitely try not to be in a rut because 
if you're doing like the same task and you, if you have the same routine every single day, it's so easy to just feel bored with your life. So like something as small as a different Starbucks order or like taking a different route or on, on your walk or something like that. Um, these tiny little things, even though they're small, well, personally, I, I think they make a huge difference. I just really try and not get in the habit of like, like, like we talk, just talked about work, school, work, school, even like doing things. I, I had a day off. So I just went to Harborfront to watch the sunset because I was like, oh, I actually realized as long as I live downtown, I have never gone to actually watch the sunset because you can't really see it like, you know, with all the buildings. So yeah, switch up your routine. And I know it's hard because we're literally in lockdown, but just Try and like spice up your life and even in the most small ways like that. So Gavin, thank you so much for joining us today on the pod. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So today we're going to be talking about a story you reported for the Ryersonian, which is about Zoom and some deceptive security practices that they had a couple years back. So can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So basically, Zoom, like before this whole pandemic thing, I mean, they were still a video platforming service. And I think if I remember, they had about 10 million users before the uh, pandemic started. So like a pretty decent number. But when the pandemic started, they shot up to something like 300 million users. And they were basically like, oh man, we need to support all these people. We want them to stay. And people are using this for a lot of work stuff now. So we'll just say we have end-to-end encrypted calls and we'll just say a bunch of this stuff and we won't really pull through with it. So that's kind of what the story was about. Like the FTC filed the complaint and found that, yeah, they've basically been lying to, uh, to their consumers about what level of security they actually had. Yeah, so in 2018, like Zoom was able to bypass Mac security and install software, as you know, without user knowledge. Yeah, Um, that was a funny one. Yeah, it's crazy. And for someone who's a casual computer user like myself, can you explain why that's dangerous to both your computer and you? So yeah, basically what Zoom did is Macs are like, I, Apple in general is actually like really secure from a technical and security standpoint. I mean, there's the US always trying to get like court orders to break into Apple machines because you just can't do it otherwise. So part of Mac security is they, they've got the Safari security. So one of the things is it stops just like your Windows or any computer, it stops you from clicking a link that might be malicious, um, something that might have something hidden in it. So basically what Zoom did is they installed this software that allowed Mac to open up links directly from Zoom, basically. So like if I sent you like this Zoom link, takes me to a little website and I have to click open link and then it opens up. That's actually something that Ryerson added, in fact. But so the, what Zoom did is basically just let you click that link, but it wasn't just Zoom links. So it opened up, like it kind of just opened that pathway. And then through that pathway, a bunch of like, super common viruses and malware and stuff can pour through into your computer without you really even knowing because they did it completely without uh, the user knowledge. And do you know why Ryerson kind of implemented that two-step open process? Yeah, it was kind of in response to um, a lot of the claims about like Zoom security. Um, A lot of people I've talked to in writing these stories have basically been like, yeah, Zoom, they say they're secure and, and they're not. So I think Ryerson is kind of aware of it. 
CSS, they did a whole bunch of work uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, making sure that Zoom was secure and that people couldn't just like drop in and uh, prank meetings again, because that was uh, that was a good time when that was going going on. Yeah, definitely. And Ryerson, despite all these claims, still actively uses Zoom. Um, do you believe we should kind of switch over to a new video conference uh, site? Because I know a lot of other universities still use Google Hangouts and applications like that. Do you think we're secure enough to use Zoom or should we kind of switch over and find a new application? I think we should switch over and find a new application. Um, James Turk, who's the director for the Center of Free Expression, who I talked to a bunch for this story, had a good point, though. He mentioned that we're not really doing a whole lot of stuff that's uh, security focused for us, the students. You know, it's mostly just going to classes and, and stuff like that. So the lack of security isn't really an issue, but the Zoom censorship in academic matters this year and recently is a bit more concerning and kind of more of a reason why we shouldn't use Zoom, in my opinion. And there are a lot of good alternatives, like you said, Google Hangouts. There's one called Signal, which is like made by Edward Snowden. So I think he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and for conference applications like those, should we also still be on our toes and figuring out what kind of security they have? Yeah, definitely. I think right now um, everyone's becoming a lot more security conscious and uh, I'm not sure that like company policy has really caught up to the point where they're being forward with their security to their consumers. In the past, it's definitely been something that people don't really think about. And now that people are thinking about it, I'm hoping that uh, we'll see a lot more like, you know, commitments to security and a lot more like advertising the security of, of things. And do you know any good tips or tricks for students that want to stay safe with their applications and such, but aren't really sure how to do that? Yeah, uh, a VPN is good. I mean, there's deals on VPNs all the time if you watch YouTube, and they're actually really good. Other than that, uh, a physical blocker for your webcams, always a really good idea. I use DuckDuckGo on my computer. It's a browsing extension that blocks trackers and stuff. Browsing extensions definitely help a lot, like uh, uBlock Origin, Ghostry, DuckDuckGo. Yeah, there's there's a lot of little things you can do that don't really affect your day-to-day. But for someone who's a lot more security-focused, I think uh, th there's a whole lot of other stuff they can do. But that's not really something for a casual person. I know the Zoom kind of security issues started a few years back. Do you know if there's anything currently going on with that? Uh, so the most recent thing was that the FTC and Zoom settled over the complaint. So I think part of that settlement was they have to, they, they basically have to do what they said they were going to do. So they have to increase their security like a bunch. One of the things was like uh, meetings like this one were supposed to be encrypted when they were stored and that just wasn't happening. So they've got to do that now. I can't remember anything off the top of my head, but they do have to do a lot more. They have to do a lot of backend security work as a result of this settlement and pay some minor fine. And as a result of all of these security battles, um, do you think Zoom kind of took a hit and people are switching over from it? Or do you think no one really cared or found out about this and they just continued using Zoom? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. Like I think people are trying to use Zoom less because of everything that's come out. And there's just been so much about Zoom recently and I think people are getting kind of fatigued from it. I, I don't think this story or like this topic is driving people away in droves. I think like the alternatives and the fact that they offer 
comparable service and also better security. I think that's kind of what's pulling people away. I mean, I know I still use Zoom just because like all of our schools on it. I don't really have a choice. Do you think in the future Ryerson will ever switch over or to, are they too dedicated to Zoom and using their platform? Uh, I'm not sure. They, they seemed like they were kind of sticking with Zoom right now. Um, I fielded some questions to Lashemi and he kind of mentioned that changing platforms in the middle of an academic year is kind of stressful. Which, yeah, I guess has merit, but I think also switching to Zoom in the middle of last semester was stressful too. But no, nah, I don't think there's enough, there's enough like real reason for, for Ryerson to switch away to Zoom. Not unless the like academic censorship kind of trend continues, but that seems to have tapered off at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now that cybersecurity month's over, everyone yeah. gets it once a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't get fished by the, uh, the CSS team this year. So that was interesting. <laughs> I don't check my emails anyway, so. True, true. (laughs) Now that everything's online, I think it's super important that people uh, are just mindful of privacy policies recently. A lot of things have changed. There's been a lot of laws passed in the EU and here that have changed privacy as we know it in the past couple of years. I I don't know if you've noticed, but every time I go on websites now, there's an unclickable or like an unclosable thing that says like we take cookies now. So like there's a lot of things that have changed. So I think if uh, like if people want to be more mindful online they can just read a little bit about how things have changed and be a bit more informed about that yeah Yeah, that's about it that's awesome awesome thanks Gavin well thank you so much for joining us today we really appreciate it no problem thanks again for having me it was fun here's what else we're covering this week Reporter Gavin Mercier and Blue and Gold executive Jasmine Ratch explore how COVID-19 might permanently change how we travel. And sports editor Daniel Santano took a dive into the world of athletics at Ryerson and how the pandemic is changing their futures in the academic world. That's all for this season's final episode of Blue and Gold. Thank you for being with us this fall, and we look forward to being back in the winter term. Happy holidays! Blue and Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and Ryerson School of Journalism. I'm your host, Sidra Jaffrey, and our executive producers are Jasmine Ratch, Najud Al-Maliz, and Alex Sear. Our editor-in-chief is Patrick Squadden, and our managing editor is Michelle Allen. Our instructors are Peter Baker-George and H.G. Watson. Until next time.